You're listening to the Renegade Endurance Podcast, episode number 37. This podcast is brought to you by the Find Your Perfect Diet course. Figuring out what to eat can be overwhelming, and hidden food sensitivities are often a huge reason why you aren't meeting your performance goals. In this course, I take you through the process of finding the perfect diet for you, not the diet that worked for someone else. So if you've ever struggled with fatigue or insomnia or wondered why you aren't getting faster or stronger even though you're putting in the work, then finding your perfect diet is going to be life-changing for you. Visit therenegadenp.com slash findyourperfectdiet, all one word, to learn more. Welcome to the Paleo NP Podcast. I'm Martha, a family nurse practitioner and creator of MarthaFlorence.com. I live in Anchorage, Alaska with my boyfriend and fur children. I'm here to share my take on integrative health, nutrition, and fitness, answer your questions, and talk with health and wellness experts. You can submit your questions at MarthaFlorence.com. Enjoy this week's episode. Remember that the materials and content within this podcast are intended as general information only and are not to be considered a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Hello, podcast friends. You may have noticed a few things are different around here. This podcast has a shiny new name and photo, but it's still me talking about the same things. Also, if you love the show and want to help support it, I now have the option for you to make a monthly donation that goes towards this show. In the not-too-distant future, there will be a few fun things just for people who support the show. This is completely optional, but it will allow me to create episodes more consistently. And truly, if you want to support the show but money is tight, any amount helps. It serves as both a motivator for me as well as helps to allow me to to make creating the show a priority rather than trying to squeeze it in in between projects. I've been tracking my time and it took me just over three hours to create the notes for this show. That includes the time spent reading studies and researching, not just figuring out what I'm going to say, but that's a pretty significant time investment for an episode that comes out to about 20 or 30 minutes. So if you find the information that I provide valuable, it would mean the world to me if you'd send a few bucks my way. You can find the link to support the show in the show notes or go to anchor.fm slash renegade endurance. And there's a button there to donate. Okay, on to the good stuff. This week, I wanted to dive into the topic of multivitamins because I feel like there are two main categories of people when it comes to vitamins, those who think that you should take them and those who think that they are a waste of money. I honestly fall somewhere in the middle, but as I went to look at the research that was available on multivitamins while I was writing the notes for this episode, I think I might be sliding more towards the camp of everyone should take a multivitamin. First, I want to clarify that taking a multivitamin or any supplement, honestly, is absolutely 100% not a substitute for eating a solid diet full of whole nutrient-dense foods. This is hands down the best way to get all the vitamins and minerals you need because there are a lot of phytonutrients found in plants and whole foods that we have no idea about and we don't know what benefit they have or how they interact with other nutrients. So while you may think that eating an orange and taking a vitamin C supplement are the same thing, they are very much not. You get a much greater benefit from the orange than the supplement. But even if you're eating a healthy diet, studies show that it's virtually impossible to get adequate amounts of all of the necessary nutrients just from food. One recent paper reported that large populations of people in the U.S. had intakes that were below the daily requirement for a variety of nutrients. So 35% of people don't get enough vitamin A, 31% don't get enough vitamin C, 74% don't get enough vitamin D, 
67% don't get enough vitamin E, 39% don't get enough calcium, 46% don't get enough magnesium. They also found that 0% of people get enough potassium, and that's a huge deal. 8% of people did get enough choline, and 33% got enough um, vitamin K. So this means that what's called micronutrient sufficiency is not being achieved through food in a huge portion of the population. There's also a whole host of reasons why we aren't getting adequate micronutrients from our food. To really dive into this topic could be a whole podcast in itself, so I'm only going to mention a few things. First, the average American is simply not eating enough of the right foods. Go into any grocery store and you see that most of it is taken up with processed foods full of artificial ingredients. And while, yes, many of them are fortified with certain necessary nutrients, not being deficient is very different from having enough for health, and we'll talk about that more in a minute. Fruits and vegetables are the main source of vitamins, and it's recommended that we get at least five servings daily. I recommend more like nine, but five is a great place to start. But a recent survey showed that only about 30% of the population actually meets this goal. Another reason is that the plants and animals we eat have fewer micronutrients than they used to. There are many reasons for this, nutrient-depleted soil, pesticides, and breeding for specific traits like taste and sugar content and appearance over nutrients. So chances are that even if you are eating a nutrient-dense whole food diet, you may still be deficient or not entirely sufficient in many of these nutrients. One of the big problems with suboptimal levels of vitamins, and that includes levels that are above the level of what is considered a deficiency, is that it contributes to an increased risk of chronic disease, especially cancer, cardiovascular disease, and osteoporosis. An article from the Journal of the American Medical Association states that measurements of vitamin levels for abnormality are not reliable, a reliable guide for this form of deficiency. The example that they use is that supplementing folate in elderly patients decreased their homocysteine levels, which is a metabolite that typically indicates deficiency of B6, B12, or folate, which we've actually talked about. I think I talked about that in the B12 episode. So it sufficiently decreased their homocysteine levels, even though their serum folate levels were normal. So to say that supplementing when you are not deficient does not provide a benefit is contradictory. There is randomized clinical trial data, which is considered the strongest form of evidence, showing that supplementing folate during the first trimester of pregnancy reduces the risk of neural tube defects in infants, and the same with calcium reducing the risk of fractures in elderly women with osteoporosis. The folate supplementation that's present in many cereals and grains only increases folate by about 100 micrograms, so that's still not enough for many people to get the recommended 400 micrograms per day. Food preparation also decreases the vitamin content of food, so keeping food hot for longer than two hours causes a 10% or greater loss of vitamin C, folate, and B6. These same vitamins are also lost during chilling, storage, and reheating. So even though you might be getting enough of a certain food to think that you're getting adequate intake of certain vitamins, if you're cooking, chilling, and or reheating your food, chances are that you are not getting as much as you thought you were. I've said this once, but I'll say it again. Vitamin supplementation is not an appropriate substitute for a good diet. So the first line of defense against micronutrient deficiency is still a solid diet. That being said, after reading a few studies, which I've linked in the show notes, It seems like it's generally a good idea for most people to take a multivitamin, regardless of the quality of their diet. 
One study concluded that supplementation with a multivitamin formulated at about 100% of daily value of nutrients can decrease the prevalence of suboptimal vitamin status and improve micronutrient status levels to levels associated with reduced risk for several chronic diseases. Another concluded that micronutrient sufficiency is not being achieved through food solutions for several essential vitamins and minerals, and that the use of age and gender-specific multivitamin and multimineral supplements may serve as a practical way to increase micronutrient status without increasing intakes above the upper limit. There are many clinical trials that have demonstrated the benefits of multivitamin and multimineral supplementation, and it has been shown not only to improve nutritional status and decrease risk for chronic diseases, but also has been shown to improve mood, alleviate migraines, improve immune function and infectious disease outcomes in the elderly, reduce morbidity and mortality in patients with HIV infections, decrease PMS symptoms, improve symptoms of bipolar disorder, decrease violence and antisocial behavior in children, and improve intelligence in children as well. Another reason why I think that there is resistance among many in the medical community to adopt a widespread recommendation to for multivitamins is because the nutrient sufficiency of a population tends to be determined, at least on a broad level, by the absence of what is called a short latency disease, such as rickets, scurvy, or beriberi. One study I read on this topic stated that the long latency disorders that affect the human race today, such as cancer, cardiovascular disease, and central nervous system degeneration, constitute a field that, from the standpoint of clinical nutrition, is left largely to nutritional quacks. Discerning the extent to which nutrition plays a role in many of these disorders, positive or negative, is probably one of the biggest challenges that faces nutritional science today. This paper also said that there is bias towards short latency diseases and a tendency to link the individual nutrients to a single disease as well as single disease mechanisms. So what the heck does that even mean? So vitamin D deficiency has been linked to rickets. Iodine deficiency has been linked to goiter and so on. So the presumption has been that if the intake of the nutrient is sufficient to prevent the expression of what's called the index disease, so the index disease of vitamin D deficiency is rickets, then the intake of that same nutrient must also be sufficient for overall well-being. This same article gives examples of how that is not true, and it uses calcium and vitamin D as examples. I don't want to get too into the weeds with exactly what it discusses because there's a lot of physiology talk in that paper, but I will link to the paper in the show notes as well as pull out some of the more pertinent points in the show notes so that you can read either the whole article or get kind of the all my highlights. You can get my highlights. Um, I will add those notes into the show notes so you can see those if you don't want to read the whole article. But probably the most profound statement in regards to vitamin D from that paper, um, and this also carries over to any other nutrient, is that Vitamin D requirements are aimed at preventing stage 3 deficiency. So in the case of vitamin D, that's rickets or something called osteomalacia. And there is still the presumption that if you don't have rickets or osteomalacia, then you have sufficient vitamin D. It then goes on to discuss that increasing serum vitamin D levels from 50 nanomoles per liter to 80 nanomoles per liter, both values of which are in the normal reference range for the lab, improves calcium absorption efficiency by nearly two-thirds and reduces the risk of osteoporotic fracture by one-third. So increasing vitamin D levels within the normal range, so 50 nanomoles per liter is, by most reference ranges, not deficient. I think the reference, the bottom end of the reference range is typically around 20. 
So increasing it within the normal reference range decreases your risk of an osteoporotic fracture by one third. That's pretty profound. This also gets into the idea that recommended daily intakes are kind of junk because their goal is to make sure that you don't get any of these short latency diseases and not really for you to be optimally healthy or even honestly really healthy at all. I'm not sure how that's really a good policy. I get that we want to prevent disease, but why are we focusing on the bare minimum? I'm sure that there's some sort of political agenda here, or maybe it's meant to keep the entire medical industry in business, but whatever the reason is, I'm not sure that it's a good one. So my conclusion from reading all of this is that we all need to start taking a a multivitamin. Inevitably, the next question you're going to ask me is, which one should I take? But before I dive into that, I want to mention um, one of the studies that I referenced earlier that said that they were not aware of any evidence that various multivitamins differ in their bioavailability of nutrients because of the way they were formulated. So this particular study was written in 2002. So I'm not really sure what the availability of whole foods-based multivitamins were at that time because I certainly wasn't paying attention to nutrition. I was in college. (laughs) Either way, I wanted to share what the evidence says, um, but also say that I disagree with the evidence in this case. So what should you look for in a multivitamin? I prefer capsules over tablets. You can shove a lot of stuff in a relatively small space with a tablet, but they tend to be harder to digest and full of binders and other questionable things that keep them together. It also takes longer for them to break down in your gut because of the way they are packed together. Capsules break down much more easily, which is important because most of your nutrient absorption takes place in your small intestines. And if you have a giant tablet that takes forever to break down, that may not happen completely in your small intestines, which means expensive pee. That being said, if you find a capsule-based multivitamin, chances are it will require you to take multiple capsules because you can't fit as much stuff into a capsule as you can a tablet. However, I found that the expensive pee problem is generally greatly reduced with a multiple capsule dose multivitamin. It's also possible that this means twice a day dosing, so maybe once in the morning and once in the evening, but be careful if you choose to go that route because if your vitamin contains B vitamins, you might have your, find yourself having trouble sleeping if you take it at night. Your multivitamin should also not contain any gross fillers, especially something called magnesium stearate. The only purpose of this form of magnesium is to help ingredients go through the manufacturing equipment faster. So all it's doing is saving the manufacturer money, but it also decreases the absorption rate of some of the nutrients in your vitamin. Something like calcium lorate is a better option. It serves the same purpose, but does not simultaneously inhibit absorption. This no gross filler requirement also means that your multivitamin should be free from wheat, corn, gluten, yeast, artificial colors, artificial sweeteners, artificial flavors, and lactose. If you're an athlete, you need to make sure that your vitamin doesn't have any banned ingredients in it. If you look at the banned ingredients list, it's actually quite shocking what's on there. There is a certification called NSF for sport, which ensures that it has been verified by third party that it's free from any banned ingredients. This is something that I actually just learned about. I listened to a couple of interviews with Olympic athletes who said that they were really scared to take any sort of vitamin or supplement or even use protein powder for fear that it contained something that would get them banned from competition. So this is kind of a big deal for a lot of athletes. If you're really concerned about this, look for something called the TGA certification. This is the Australian Therapeutic Goods Administration's Inspection and Certification, which is conducted at a pharmaceutical level standard. 
there are very few companies in the U.S. that have this. So it's honestly probably not worth the trouble for most people to find a vitamin that is TGA certified. But if you are a high-level athlete, it definitely is worth your time to do some research. There are also some nutrients that you need to make sure are in your, in your multivitamin in the right forms and adequate amounts. The first thing is vitamin D. The 200 to 400 IUs of vitamin D that's in most multivitamins is honestly pretty pathetic. That's, as we've already addressed, barely enough to keep a kid from getting rickets and definitely not enough to support optimal health. And if you live in a place where there's not a lot of sun or you're in a northern climate where it's hard for your body to make vitamin D from the sun most of the year, you definitely need more. I'd prefer 2,000 units or more. Really, 2,000 to 4,000 is perfect. But since that's kind of hard to find with optimal, amount, optimal amounts of other nutrients, vitamin D tends to be the one supplement that I think most people should take, should take in addition to their multivitamin. When you look for a vitamin D supplement, you do also want to make sure that it has vitamin K2 in it in order to make sure that you're actually absorbing the vitamin D. You also need to make sure that your vitamin supplement has vitamin B6, B12, and B2 in the correct forms. For B6, that's pyridoxal 5-phosphate, or P5P. With B12, you want to make sure that it's methylcobalamin. And for B2, you want to make sure that it is riboflavin 5-phosphate. You also want to make sure that the folate in your vitamin is not folic acid, and it's even better if it is something called methyl tetrahydrofolate. Minerals are also tricky because by themselves, they are not really well absorbed, so they need to be bound to something else. Look for chelated forms of calcium, magnesium, copper, zinc, manganese, chromium, and molybdenum. It will say something like zinc picolinate or magnesium bisglycinate on the label instead of just the name of the mineral. I've also seen them listed as something like zinc amino acid chelate. I also typically like a whole foods-based multivitamin because despite what the study I mentioned earlier says, I think that they're better absorbed. I have found that there is less of the expensive pea phenomenon with a whole food-based multi. My favorite brand is Garden of Life. It satisfies most of my requirements, but not all of them. If you're interested in learning what other brands I recommend, I will put a link in the show notes for Fullscript, which is the online dispensary that I use. And you can go in and create a free account there. And when you do that, you'll be able to see what I recommend people take as for certain vitamins, specifically brands. Um, and you'll also get 10% off all of your orders. So this is the dispensary that I use with my patients in the clinic as well. And it's really super handy because it's easy to just be like, here's what I here's what I recommend. And they are able to see all of that rather than trying to figure that out for yourself. All right, that is it for this week. You can get all of the links that I mentioned and full show notes at therenegadenp.com slash 37. I'm always grateful when people reach out to me and tell me that they love the show. It really helps me to stay motivated and to keep making it. I would love it if you would leave a rating or review on iTunes or in the podcast app on your phone, or if you know someone who might find this episode helpful, please share it with them. Thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time.